Hey, New City, this is Damien. In this podcast, I sat down with Mike Allen to talk about knowing God as Trinity, especially as it relates to the book we're in this fall, Ephesians. We take a few minutes to walk through the usage of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit throughout most every chapter in Ephesians, and we talk about why it's actually practical in our day-to-day Christian life. I hope you enjoy. All right, Mike, it's good to be with you again this morning to talk about the Trinity. My pleasure. This is fun. You know, I was thinking about the Trinity, and my sense is that people get nervous when you talk about the Trinity. Some people don't, but the people who do, I think, have come to understand the Trinity as something that is true about God or connected to God, but something that can be pushed later in one's discipleship. And in a sense, forgotten for a time, and then we may make our way back around to it. But in fact, Trinity is essential to who God is. It it is who God is. It's a way to talk about God. It's not an attribute of God. It's who he is. It's his very identity. And so we have this doctrine of the Trinity. And let's just start right there by saying, why is talking about the doctrine of the Trinity important for Christians? Yeah. I mean, I think it's important to acknowledge on the front end that it can feel unimportant or inaccessible to a lot of people. There is a famous line from Dorothy Sayers, and almost a century ago she said, of the doctrine of the Trinity, the Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, the whole thing incomprehensible. (laughs) Something thrown in by theologians just to throw people off. Uh, And and I think that can be people's sense of it. But uh, really, if you think about it, it it answers two questions. Uh, Who is God? who we're made by and we're made for, who we find our happiness and our rest in, um, just as much as uh, coming to know a friend, Mm. not just knowing things you do together, but knowing the friend through the things you do together, knowing them, coming to love them, not just doing stuff or hanging out or participating in a hobby or work or something together. Uh, Friendship with God involves deeper knowledge of God's identity, his nature, his characteristics, and, and Trinity's right at the heart of that. But also coming to know and have comfort that God will be able to bring us back to him. Mm. Uh, and so it it's not just who we come to know in the gospel, but also how the gospel works. The Trinity is mm. crucial to that, that, that God provides everything by the work of Father and the work of Son and the work of Spirit. And, and that that gives us assurance and confidence, I think, in a real sense. Yeah. So, so I heard one time someone, an author, mentioned that in the West there was this notion of God, and we had this sort of notion of a monotheistic God of, of God, and um, we we took that notion and we've tried to fit this idea of Trinity into that instead of starting with the reality that God is Trinity in the Bible. And so what do you think about that? Do you think that that's a helpful way to talk about it or how would you, how would you speak to that? Maybe sometimes. Uh, I think we have all sorts of different struggles and it's, it's probably the case throughout the centuries and in different places that people come at it and struggle in different ways. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it is like so many truths of the gospel and the Christian faith, it is something that is deeply mysterious. Mm. And, and in one sense, learning how mysterious it is is an achievement. Mm. Um, uh, and that doesn't mean we should be lazy or slothful and, and despairing and not try. And it doesn't mean that anything goes. But it does mean that I've not met anyone else 
for whom I can say there are three persons who are one being, mm-hmm. or one being and three persons. I mean, that's just strange. Yeah. Uh, you know, if if I were to introduce someone to you at a party and say, "Hey, three persons, one bit," you would you would be thrown off your game very much. Uh, it would seem very odd, um, and and that's challenging for us to come to know and understand. But that's also precisely why there's hope here. Mm. I mean, if if we're to find rest and happiness, and if we're to be saved from our sins by someone, it's got to be someone who's radically different from us, because mm. everyone like us is as screwed up and sinful as we are, and mm. as weak and impotent as we are. And so, uh, for God to be good to us and good for us, for him to be the one we find our rest in and the one who can redeem us from our sins, he's got to be utterly transcendent and different and thus difficult to know. Mm. And if he's not, then he can't help, mm. you know. Yeah. He might be interesting, but he can't help us at our most fundamental level. And so there are just a number of different ways we can go awry and fall into problems, even heresies at times in the history of the church. Um, but you know, at a very deep level, this is coming to know and appreciate and delight in the mystery of the Trinity mm. um, and the uniqueness of God. And that's a real challenge. That's a humbling thing, I think. Yeah, and, and I, it has to be, to your point, why Paul prays uh, mm. in chapter one that we would know God. Mm-hmm. And there are a number of, of sort of, you could say Trinitarian formulas, or another way to say it is just the ways in which Paul talks about God and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit throughout the entire book. Maybe we'll get into at some point, but let's start in chapter one uh, when Paul talks about, well, really he prays about knowing God. And let's start there and maybe unpack the ways in which uh, he speaks about God. Yeah, I mean, right off the bat in Ephesians 1, 3, he begins with this blessing, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And right there, you've got the Father, the Father of our Lord, uh, who has blessed, and we're, we're soon to hear, has a plan and a will and a, a predestining or electing purpose. Uh, you've got Jesus Christ, uh, the incarnate Son, uh, in whom we're blessed, um, unto whom we are adopted, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins, we'll, we'll read soon thereafter. And then you have every spiritual, and probably ought to be capital S, blessing, mm. every blessing in and related to the Holy Spirit, uh, who is the one who actually uh, brings the fullness of God and, and makes it real within us and transforms us. And so right there you've got reference to the three persons, but involved in this one common act of salvation, that, mm. that God is in these differentiated ways working out one eternal glorious, gracious plan for his people. Mm. And because God is, is doing it in these, these different ways, Father being highlighted as the one who elects, Son being highlighted as the one uh, in whom we are redeemed, the Redeemer, the, the sin-bearer, and the Spirit is the one who, who transforms us within and is the firstborn, or the, the, the first fruits of our inheritance, rather, um, we see God provides everything. Mm. Um, God, God provides for every facet of the gospel in a real sense. And that gets picked up, I mean, throughout chapter one and, and even, as you mentioned, throughout the, the letter as a whole. Yes. So uh, you've taught through Ephesians in, in many different contexts and in different ways, and, and you've thought about it uh, over time. So when you think about, obviously, the, the, this, this idea of God being Trinity, God is three in one, shows up in, in multiple places. 
But is there is there any other place in the New Testament quite like Ephesians where it's, I mean, he just launches into all of these um, these different ways in which he talks about the work of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. So what are some other ways that we might see that in the New Testament? Yeah, I mean, maybe the the most significant text is also from Paul in Romans 8, uh, the first half of the chapter. He talks about uh, what it means to have life in the Spirit uh, and not merely to live in the flesh. Um, but in the middle of the chapter, he starts talking in a variety of ways of, of how there is the Father uh, to whom we are adopted. There's the Son in whom we're adopted and the Spirit who works within us that we can speak to God and relate to God in a certain way. And so in Romans eight twelve to 17, uh, there's just this really rich, almost overwhelming description of how we're being brought into this this conversation, mm. really, of these three, and we're we're enfolded into that. We get to share in the life of God, the family of God, in a sense. We're creatures. We're not divine. You don't become a god or something, um, but you do become godly because you're you're adopted in and through Jesus Christ, and you get to share that relationship. And that's what it means for us to call and to pray to God as Father, mm. that we get to speak to Him as if we are in the position of his son because we, we are united to him. Mm. Um, and we're, we're capable of that kind of confidence and boldness and faith because the spirit's at work in us and he's dwelling in us and he's changing us. And so uh, you have this objective standing in the son that enables you to address God rightly as father uh, and for him to delight in that. Uh, and then you have this subjective uh, emboldening and strengthening so that you would dare to do that mm. by faith, and that's of the Spirit. And and so a text like Romans 8 really, uh, similarly to Ephesians 1, uh, describes how there's this Trinitarian life uh, that, that surrounds us and enfolds us and includes us by God's grace, that, that the kind of love and, and fellowship they share by nature eternally by grace and the gospel, we come to share in, in a creaturely way. Mm. Yes. So so all throughout the New Testament, it seems the way in which the writers speak about God and what he's done in the world, it's like Father, Son, and Spirit are woven into the way they even speak about salvation and the way they even speak about redemption. And and of course, we see that right out of the, right out of the gate, as we mentioned in Ephesians. And so if we do go back then to Ephesians, uh, more specifically, in Ephesians, uh, what are ways Father, Son, and Spirit each are mentioned? Yeah, I mean, just looking simply at chapter one, you can see, for instance, the Father appears in verse two uh, as the one from whom uh, we receive grace and peace, the, the blessing stated over them. That'll be repeated at the end of chapter six, closing up the letter. Uh, and then verses three to six describe how the Father is the one who chooses uh, who predestines, who has this purpose of his will. And so it's highlighting the eternal will, the election of the Father. Uh, and then he'll be mentioned again in verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. So there's this remarkable uh, affirmation that God the Father is there at the beginning in eternity, but he's also active now, and the prayer is now he would give you this spirit of revelation and knowledge. Uh, the Son, of course, is mentioned right off the bat, again in verse 2, yeah. that grace and peace come not just from the God and Father, but also the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and then verse 3 uh, includes him as well um, in this, this mention of the blessing that's ours. 
Uh, and very quickly in verses 4 to 13, it starts to describe how we're adopted in, in Christ, how we're redeemed in him, received the forgiveness of our trespasses uh, according to the riches of his grace, uh, how God's purpose is set forth in Christ, uh, in his coming, in his manifestation, in his work. Um, and then again, he's mentioned as well in verse 17 uh, with reference to the Father, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ is the one who's going to give this to you. Um, and then the Spirit comes in a bit later uh, and, and is talked about in verse 13, uh, that those of us who've heard the word of truth, the gospel of, of your salvation, and who've believed in him, are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So the Spirit's been promised before, the Spirit's been anticipated, but but now the Spirit is given as a pledge or a seal, another word that's used here, um, for those who believe in Christ. Mm. Uh, he, he comes on us like a seal does and stamps us or marks us as being truly God's own children mm. uh, adopted in Christ. Uh, and so the possession uh, of the Spirit, not that we control him, but that he is present and yeah. inhabits us, uh, that's a mark that we belong to God. Mm. And that's highlighted here. And then the prayer, of course, in verse 17 and following is that we'd be given a spirit uh, that would bring knowledge and revelation. And so what Paul is praying for them here and in chapter 3 is that the Holy Spirit would more deeply illumine them and enlighten them, opening the eyes of their heart that they might know the, the power and the love of God and who they are in him. Uh, and so... In all sorts of ways, each of the three persons are mentioned, even just in these first few uh, verses of mm. the entire letter. Yeah. So, how if we, if we think about Paul's prayer, and and as you've walked us through the way in which Paul has talked about the work of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, how is it that really two questions? I'll start with one. How is it that we might um, we might minimize certain parts of that prayer, just given who we are, given our traditions, uh, given these types of things. What are ways in which we could either Father, Son, or Spirit, you you just go with it. What are ways in which we could minimize and therefore uh, deflate or, or pull the rug out from underneath what Paul's really trying to do here? Right. I think there's three ways, uh, you know, and uh, it, it's dangerous to suggest, oh, well, we now, we struggle with this because actually people are very different mm-hmm. uh, in all sorts of ways and experiences, yeah. uh, subjectively, personally, uh, traditionally, based on their context, what they're familiar with or not. Um, you know, there, there is a, a way in which uh, a lot of people can still uh, minimize the work of the Spirit, which mm-hmm. is overtly what Paul's praying, that God would give a spirit of revelation and knowledge to them. And especially as moderns, and particularly in some uh, Christian traditions that have been more focused perhaps on the, the finished work of Christ, mm-hmm. uh, it can be easy sometimes for people, for us, uh, to overlook the fact that we need the Spirit to open our eyes mm. and that it's not as simple as having the right data mm. uh, before us, but we actually have to be the right sort of person. Mm. And being the right sort of person doesn't mean coming from the right family or people uh, or having the right education. It ultimately means having God working within you Mm. and and changing you, bringing you to life. Um, And so it's easy to overlook the need for subjective transformation. Yeah, Um, It's it's also the case that uh, we we can certainly overlook the fact that we do in fact uh, need to have a, a Christological perspective. 
and that Jesus is the one in whom all God's purposes are set forth. And it's very tempting for a lot of different reasons to assume that maybe Jesus is one instance of the different ways God works or the different paths to life. And he's a great one and, mm. and he was a really compelling one, but there are other ways. And Ephesians 1 wants to tell us, no, I mean, Christ is the way, the truth, the life, as, as we've read earlier in the New Testament. Uh, he's the way that God has set forth his purpose. Um, all things are united in him and him alone. And so that kind of Christ-centered vision where we look to Christ to define both who God is for us, but also who we ought to be, mm. what it means to be human. We can overlook that too. Uh, and then, you know, I think for all the fact that we pray to God the Father, we can easily overlook the fact uh, that the Father is integrally involved in our daily lives. Mm. Um, Son is one of us now after the incarnation. Spirit we know indwells us. They can feel so much closer. The Father maybe can feel a bit more distant or at a remove because he's not a human being uh, and he doesn't indwell us in the same way. Uh, And there's something powerful apparently to Paul saying that he has from eternity chosen and elected and predestined and there's there's, there's difficulty in understanding that and wrestling with that, but there's meant to be assurance and confidence in that, Mm -hmm. that that my life and all the things that go into it isn't just historical happenstance Mm -hmm. and that God is working out a plan that goes beyond my own dreams and, and all of that, uh, but is, is where I can find real confidence, especially when storms hit. Uh, and so it's important to remember how much Paul is alerting us mm. to the fact that the Father's working out a plan. Yeah, yeah, that, that's really good. So basically in our daily Christian lives, what I hear you saying is that Father, Son, and Spirit are active, yeah. Every moment, every day. It's not just that the father is somewhere out there, uh, sometimes involved, sometimes not, uh, but he he's working out his plan. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the theologian John Owen in the 17th century would talk about how not only are they all three active, but we ought to think about communing with not just God in general, but with each of the three persons mm. uh, in a lot of similar ways, but in some distinct ways. What does it mean to commune with the Son as the one who knows and sympathizes uh, personally yeah. with our own plight and struggles, as you know, Hebrews 2 puts it? Uh, what is it to, to commune with the Spirit who actually indwells us and is empowering us? What does it mean to commune with the Father who has before us worked out this plan? Mm. Uh, we don't want to overdo it. They're, they work together. They, it's one God. They work in a united way. They're, they're not bargaining or negotiating things. They're not at cross purposes. Uh, you know, there's this remarkable uh, oneness there that exceeds anything we could imagine. But they have different names for a reason, mm-hmm. and, and we do well to pay attention to that too. Yeah, um, and to appreciate the common glory and blessing and life and fullness they each have uh, in their personal ways. Mm-hmm. So, you know, even as you're talking, I'm thinking it's no wonder that in Paul's language um, in the prayer in chapter one, he's, he's praying that, that our, the eyes of our heart would be opened. And later on in chapter three, he's going to pray something very similarly to that. But, I mean, even as you're talking, I'm thinking the richness, the, um, the, the potential of what's there in communing with God, given who he is, is is magnificent, and it's much more. Um, 
it's much more. I'll just say that. I mean, there's, there might be a reason why we name the sermon series in light right. of more, but there's much more there than at least I and probably many of those who would listen to this have thought about in terms of how we can know God and in what ways we can relate with him and commune with him. Yeah, and I think for all of us, if we're honest, uh, we don't just live in a secular age, but we have been secularized, Mm. which is why being attuned to there being more is important, Uh, not for us combating the world out there, but the struggles in here. Yeah, uh, in the church and in our in my own heart, and and so one remarkable gift I think that I think we'd pray for our church would be that you know every man, woman, and child would be alerted by a text like Ephesians to not just how God is near, but how Father is near and active, how Son is near and active, how Spirit is near and active, so that uh, it, you know it's almost like putting on. Uh, 3D glasses when going into a, a show or a ride, uh, you can suddenly see things that were there already but weren't perceptible to you. Mm. Uh, and, and, you know, this Trinitarian teaching is meant to alert you to dimensions of, of life that are present and terribly pertinent. They're where the action is, um, but that we are just trained by nature in, in our secular age and our sinful ways to overlook and to be oblivious to. Mm. Uh, and, and so this text in a real sense is like a pair of lenses uh, that, that alert us to reality at its deepest levels. And, and we're not going to get that help from elsewhere. Mm-hmm. You know, the news isn't going to help. Uh, social media is not going to help. Most of our daily conversations, unless they're real Christian fellowship, they're not going to help. Uh, and so God's word is going to sort of prick us to be mm-hmm. alert and attentive. Uh, and it seems to me that's just a big part of discipleship. Yeah, um, becoming alert and aware. Uh, the the theologian Oliver O'Donovan speaks of uh, wakefulness as mm. being a really significant Christian virtue in our day and age. Uh, not being sort of dull and uh, unaware of the triune God's work in our midst and and the present tense of the gospel. And I think Ephesians helps us cultivate that kind of sense of of wakefulness and Mm. attentiveness. Yeah. I mean, can you think off the top of your head of of a couple ways in which um, we we really are pressed in to, as it's been called, an imminent frame uh, where, in a sense, we're, we're, we're buffered. We may believe some things, but we oftentimes aren't awake to the reality that's beyond what we can see or experience with our five senses. What are some, a couple of ways you see that at work frequently in our day and age? So maybe we could say one thing about how culture affects us in that way and then one way about how we struggle living that out uh, because of that. Um, think about news consumption, first of all, whether you're listening to sources on the left or on the right, whatever angle it may be, the news is purporting to present the most important events and thought through the most important angles. And nobody talks about what God did yesterday in Central Florida, in the U.S., around the globe. Uh, They're talking about political events. They're talking about cultural happenings. uh, They're talking about sports, all sorts of things. Uh, But God's work in raising sinners to new life, God's work in, uh, you know, reconciling people in one body through the cross, God's work in calling people and giving them vocational direction, these things do not appear on the news. And so I, I think that sets expectations about what matters, what's important, what things are worth our attention. And we'd be pretty naive to think that that doesn't seep into us as Christians. 
Um, and so it's not surprising. Secondly, that I think oftentimes we feel like it's our job somehow to bridge the gap between our neighbors and God. Mm. Um, as if God is absent from our neighborhoods, our conversations, uh, our family. And somehow if I can just get this person who lives in like this spiritual void and I can somehow bring them over to God or somehow creatively get God to them, uh, then things will be good. And it's sort of on me to come up with some uh, you know, ingenious manner, some creative way, some strategic path to do that. And that that creates anxiety for a whole lot of reasons, like I'm not God and you're not God. Um, but what if Ephesians is right and God's already there? Mm. Not that they're already a Christian, but that God is thickly present. Mm. God is active everywhere, uh, that he's working to unite all things, that the whole cosmos is his, and that I can walk into a conversation with a non-Christian uh, knowing that God goes before me. Mm. And my job is not to somehow creatively and strategically figure out how to get them to God, but to testify to who God is and what God's doing. Uh, that gives peace, I think, and that gives confidence, and that gives just a remarkable sense that we're not alone, mm. and that uh, mission isn't ultimately based on our know-how, on our morals, on our charisma, on our strategies, but it's based on the presence of God and the power of God, and we point to that. Mm-hmm. You know, so those would be a couple ways. I'm sure there are others that would come to your mind and and that folks experience all the time. Yeah, you know, as you were saying it, the, the an author that that we both know of, um, Charles Taylor, and many people have talked about him in different ways. Uh, his phrase, the imminent frame being his phrase, but then also this reality struck me in a new way, actually, when you were just answering right now, of of the fact that we live in a world of contested belief, and it's always being contested. And I think that the reality is, is that when you use the example of news, I think I think for me and probably for a lot of us, we we sort of have come to assume that what we'll hear is from the imminent frame, from you know, to your point, the most important things that are happening are what we can see with our eyes that happened, and then we interpret that given whatever uh, lens we're we're interpreting it through. But but for us as Christians, what you just said has to be something that in, in continues to increase in our discipleship. Mm-hmm. That is an awareness that we we do see what they're saying, but we see beyond it. We see through it, not in a cynical sense. We see through it. But it's we see a thicker reality. We see a world that's that is uh, more than they're able to see, and we actually do see God in those places. Yeah, I think that's right. We see more; we don't see less. Yeah, that's right. So in Ephesians, you know, when it's talking about sin and struggle, for instance, at the very beginning of chapter two, it doesn't deny all the things that would show up on the news. Mm-hmm. You know, Ephesians yeah. two describes uh, the course of this world. It, it describes. Uh, passions run amok. It describes nature that's that's wrath uh, deserving because it's sinful. All sorts of things. Uh, it just goes beyond it. It's not reductive. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't reduce my problems to bad social formation. It doesn't reduce them to enmity and strife relationally. It doesn't reduce them to uh, you know my own personal sort of bent, uh, the way in which my will is thrown off personally. Uh, it, it goes further and it talks about spiritual warfare. Uh, and, and so it provides a thicker, fuller description. Mm. And, and even when describing the problem, yeah. uh, what we're up against, 
Christians don't say less, they say far more. Mm. Um, and that kind of candor is important, I think. It's yeah. a gift of God. Um, and, and of course, the same thing would be true with regard to the response, the, the kind of answer we need for all those problems. Yes. Um, thinking beyond that imminent frame. That's right. And, and that gets to my, my last question, uh, which is, I mentioned earlier, just as a little bit of background, the Trinity is not only in chapter one, uh, but it shows up um, two different, three different places in chapter one and two different places in chapter two, two in chapter three, chapter four, chapter five. So basically every chapter shows up at least once as Paul is, is alerting us to the work of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And to your to your point there, whenever we see with these eyes of more, we we see the both the problem in a, in a thicker way, and we see the solution in a thicker way, and we see God and gospel as uh, more. And so we see how the gospel then provides for all of our needs, and we see that this is God's eternal initiative and plan. So if you can just lastly here speak about the way in which Ephesians shows us that God provides for all of our needs. Yeah, I mean, think about the way in which a gift gets given. You've got to have someone who has a, a, a good gift, a gift that meets a need or provides some sort of delight. And you've also got to have somebody who receives it well. Mm-hmm. Uh, we could think about a lot of context in this regard. Um, you know, it's football season right now. I think about what a coach is planning. You need somebody who can throw the ball and put the ball in the right spot. And then you need somebody who can actually receive it and uh, hold on to it, maintain possession. And, and you don't have a complete forward pass unless both of those things happen. Uh, one can be great. If the other isn't there, it, it's for naught. Um, Ephesians describes how both God provides the gift, he puts the ball in the right spot. Mm. Uh, Jesus is given. Uh, Jesus is the one in whom redemption and forgiveness are found. Reconciliation is found. Vocation and direction is given. Uh, And Jesus, chapter 4 tells us, continues to give gifts uh, measured out to each and every person. And so God provides what we need. The catch is, though, we are not great receivers. Mm. In fact, I mean, Eden and Genesis 3 are all about how we stink at receiving and depending, and we want to, to make it on our own uh, and ever since, we've we've been terribly bad at living dependently before God. And so it's not enough for God to give a good gift unless God gives the still further gift of enabling us to be gift receivers, mm. to catch the ball. Uh, and so it's not for nothing that Ephesians also talks about the work of the Spirit within us. Mm. Uh, the Spirit who opens the eyes of our heart in chapter 1. Uh, the Spirit later, chapter 5, who's going to fill us. Um, so that we can actually lead transformed lives, so that we can uh, bless one another in the life of the church, so that we can give witness to Christ and thanks to God. And so uh, in a real sense, the gospel is not just the good news that God's got a nice offer for us, and hopefully you'll grab onto it. Hopefully you'll catch the pass that puts Mm. the ball in the right spot. But Ephesians wants you to know that God's going to ensure that you you come down with the ball mm. and that you hold on to it and that God's going to provide for both sides of, of the necessary communication of life and blessing and fullness. And anything short of that uh, doesn't have a guarantee, doesn't have assurance, doesn't have real uh, basis for confidence. And so in a real sense, I mean, Ephesians in talking about 
uh, Trinity at work is really trying to, to help us understand that the gospel is that big mm. and that God's action, making sure we as sinners are brought back to life and life with him, that that's guaranteed, that's sure. Um, and we can have confident trust in that. Mm. Um, and you see it in lots of small detailed ways, but, but really in those two big ways that God gives the gift of the word and God through the gift of the spirit ensures that we receive it well. The Trinity is an invitation for us to see something fuller, is to see the God at work in every aspect of our life as the gift giver and as the one who enables us to receive continually.